Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. Yeah, I'm Joe. Well, Joe, we had quite the first weekend of the SEC's return to football. I mean, really, it kind of had everything you could have possibly wanted. Um, and, you know, the SEC, of course, had the huge upset of Mike Leach, the pirate over Mississippi State. But then you also had uh, Oklahoma blowing another one in a huge lead against Kansas State. Uh, a lot of other good games, but those are the two that stick out to me the most. But let's start with the, the talk of the town, the toast of the conference. That's Mike Leach and his amazing passing attack. Uh, Joe, would you have ever believed if I told you last week that K.J. Costello in his first SEC start would throw for 623 yards against LSU? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, Dan. And I'm still just blown away when I look at those numbers. If you had told me he threw for 300 yards, I would have been impressed. 400, I would have been like, ah, no way. 500, I would have said, you're kidding me. 600, I feel like it was a dream, but it didn't happen. And what's even crazier about it is I remember watching the game in the first half, and it started out a little bit slow offensively for both teams. And Costello got, like, a large chunk of his yardage later in the game, like in the second half. And so when you take all that into consideration, and then on the stage uh, against the defending national championship team, in their house, the CBS game of the week. I mean, that is about as depressed as it gets. I mean, you take away the two interceptions, regardless of that, we're looking at one of the most impressive, if not most impressive, uh, debuts in SEC quarterback history. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I think, 100 yards more than the next closest SEC passing game than any other quarterbacks ever had. I think that was Tim Couch back in 1999 had a 500-yard-plus passing day. And, of course, that was also the air raid offense done by Hal Mummy, in which Mike Leach was an assistant. He was an assistant back in Kentucky, and that's where he learned the air raid offense. It's kind of interesting that number one and number two come from that same tree. Um, but I'll tell you the biggest thing that, that I was impressed with with K.J. Costello is kind of in the beginning, the late third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, it looked like LSU was starting to come back, and he had a streak of really bad plays. He threw a very poor interception, and then he followed it up with a fumble, back-to-back plays pretty much. And at that point, I was kind of like, all right, well, LSU, they've let Mississippi stay in this game for a while. The superior talent's about to take over, and they're going to come back and win this game, maybe even win it by 10 points. Well, at that point, I think they were down by three. And then Costello leads that touchdown drive and just shows you the toughness he has. And that that showed uh, what kind of player he is because that was the point where he could have folded and Mississippi State could have lost the game they were expecting to lose. Oh, without a doubt, Dan. And I think that, you know, the way they got this offense going impressed me. For it to be week one and for Costello to be that comfortable, for the guys to have that much confidence in him. And also, we were skeptical in the weeks preceding the season on this show about how would Kylan Hill fit into that offense. And they were able to use him and create weights. 
there were shovel passes where they split the ball into Kylo Hill. It's almost like a running play. And I think that that works out well. Kylo Hill's not going to get the rushing yardage that he's accustomed to in this offense with Mike Leach. But there are still creative ways that they showed on Saturday to keep him content and to keep that locker room happy with the leadership that he brings. So you're right. Costello showed a lot of uh, heart, a lot of um, you know experience where you would think that he's been in an offense for three or four years. And I guess part of that, you know, is a guy coming from Stanford uh, who's had you know success already in college football, and he and Leach in week one at least, you know, it's a seamless transition. But I do want to offer the caveat for everybody. As exciting as it looks, this is just one week. You know, we have to remember that even though this is an uber-talented LSU team, this is a shell of the LSU we saw in 2019. Because not only do we have the departure of so many great players, this is an Edward coach team without Joe Brady. So really seeing what you may be the old Edward Geron reemerge. Hey, and not just without Joe Brady, how about without Dave Aranda? That was a more glaring uh, weakness this week than even the departure of Brady because Bo Pelini's defense had nothing to stop State in that game. And I couldn't believe how bad LSU's corners looked. Now, I'll add the caveat that Derek Stingley had some undisclosed illness that kept him from playing in the game. And, of course, Stingley's arguably the best DB in America. But even so, I mean, LSU puts themselves as DBU for a reason. They usually got two or three first couple round draft picks at uh, a cornerback, and they were getting killed by a bunch of no-name receivers, including Osiris Mitchell, who's suddenly looking like a guy who can maybe get over 1,000 yards receiving this year. Another guy, too, in addition to Mitchell, is Javante Payton. He's a guy I've been hearing about for three or four years because he originally signed with Ole Miss out of uh, high school. And I remember Hugh Brees talking about him. He's really excited as uh, Peyton, he thought, was going to be, be a three-star guy that could turn into a really talented SEC wide receiver. And Peyton had to uh, eventually go the JUCO route. And then after two years at JUCO, he signed with Mississippi State. And he's got a second chance on the big stage to the SEC. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they had three guys go over 150 yards receiving, including Colin Hill you were talking about earlier. And Joe, one thing I'm interested in, you know, we had questions about how Colin Hill would fit into this offense, but I'm wondering if he has, you know, more showings like that or even in the range where he gets 100-plus yards receiving, are NFL teams maybe going to be more interested in him than they were before? Because I feel like we switched a lot in the NFL to wanting the Derrick Henry, Todd Gurley backs who are just ground and pound, getting three yards in the crowd of dust, big guys who they can catch it, but that's not one of the main parts of their game. So looking for the more Alvin Kamara, uh, Clyde Edwards, Hilaire type player. And the more Colin Hill shows that he has this receiving capability, I think it puts him more in the new age uh, look for running backs and maybe makes him more appealing to NFL franchises. No, I mean, that's definitely a valid point. I, mean, I know we'll talk about Alvin Kamara later on the show, you know, him being called the conversation of the best running back right now in the NFL with that dual threat talent, you know, that ability to be a great receiver in the backfield. And I think that you look at the LSU side, you talk about Kyle Hill, 
LSU is just missing Clyde Edwards Hilaire immensely because they're without him. And, you know, that's a great threat that he offered from a running back ability, you know, to get the yards between the tackles, but also his ability to catch the ball as a pass catcher. And LSU just does not have, you know, replacements for the talent that they've lost up into them. Yeah, I mean, uh, I thought that Miles Brennan played probably a C minus game, uh, which I would have thought probably would have been enough to win if you had told me he played a C minus game before the game started. Uh, he looked he looked very out of sorts in the first half, like a guy making his first real start. And of course, in the third and fourth quarter, he played a lot better, and he ended up passing for I think about 360 yards. But it was just too little, too late, and that would be another thing. Like you know, we we're talking about the 623 yards of KJ Costello. If you had told me that Mississippi State would rush for nine yards, LSU would pass for 360 plus yards, and that State would win the game, I'd be like, "What you smoking?" <laughs> no, without a doubt. I mean, and, and furthermore, if you had told me that LSU scored 34 points, I would have thought they won the game. I never would have thought L- that State could have hung 30 on LSU at Death Valley even in an afternoon game without a capacity crowd. I just would have found it to be uh, unfathomable, but credit Mississippi State. I mean, arguably the biggest story right now in college football. Oh, I think they're without a doubt the biggest story in college football. Um, Joe, let's switch now to the other biggest upset that we had of the week. Uh, You know, I, I could not believe that Oklahoma would lose to Kansas State two years in a row. And not only that, lose two years in a row, they blow a 21-point second-half lead, and you see a, uh, a Lincoln-Riley quarterback throw three interceptions. I mean, that, that was a mind-boggling game in and of itself. and may have been more surprising to me than Mississippi State beating LSU. Yeah, it's a game that I tuned in early, but obviously, admittedly, I was watching Ole Miss and Florida and Auburn, Kentucky, and so I wasn't really that tuned in. I was kind of monitoring the score. But when Oklahoma jumped out to that three-touchdown lead with Spencer Rattler and his immense talent, I thought they were going to coast the rest of the way. And then I turned the score back on, and I'm like, wow, you know, Kansas State is making this a game. For Kansas State, to your point, to beat them two years in a row, I just cannot believe that at all. I thought that um, Lincoln Riley would have this team ready to come out and seek revenge, and I thought that Oklahoma would win by probably three or four touchdowns at least this year. And now, you know, they've got a week where next week they take on an Iowa State team that's caused them some trouble in the past. Last year, they played Iowa State coincidentally the week after their upset loss to Kansas State. Now, I want to say that that was a very close game that Oklahoma only narrowly won, maybe like 38 to 31. So, Oklahoma, they've got to get this turned around. Um, one of the issues I see with this team, Dan, is that they're lacking uh, maybe that short number one receiver. They've got a lot of talented guys, but there's not that household name and wide receiver this year. You know, where is the CD Lamb? Where is the Marquis Brown? They've got a lot of talent. They've got a great system, but they've got to have some guys purge. Well, Joe, even more of a bigger problem that I see for Oklahoma is their lack of a number one running back. Uh, one thing that's been understated a little bit is while Lincoln Riley's there, they've had some really talented running backs. Uh, you 
And, of course, Trey Sermon was a really good one. And Trey Sermon's now playing over at Ohio State. And that was a glaring weakness to Saul right there because what's the best thing to do when you have a big lead? Ground and pound. And Oklahoma does do that a little bit. And that was another reason that, you know, it makes you – the biggest problem with Mike Leach's offense and the air raid is it's not good for holding on to leads because you got to keep passing. And right now, Oklahoma's in a situation where they don't have a good five-star running back like they usually do, and it shows because they blew a three-touchdown lead. No, that's definitely a compelling point, and you're right. When you have those prolific offenses, you've got to figure out a way to close games. If that's something that Mississippi State's going to have to be wary of as they move forward against other stiff competition. You know, obviously they cleared a major hurdle against uh, defending champ LSU, but when they take on the likes of Auburn in Alabama, it's going to be difficult if they cannot run the ball effectively. Yeah, that's going to be a big concern. Um, you know, moving to the 11 a.m. games. Um, Actually, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you real quick, Joe, do you think that Oklahoma is now out of the college football playoff discussion? I think you and I talked about it a little bit after they got obliterated by LSU last year that nothing less than an undefeated season is going to get Oklahoma back in the college football playoff after they've had two runs in a row where they got beat pretty soundly by Bama and LSU, and then, of course, they played a tight game with Georgia the one before that. Um do you think there's any way they can work themselves back in? I'll say yes um, for two reasons. One, with it being 2020, just you know the uncertainty of whether all the teams will be able to get in their games in other conferences. And then second, because they defied the odds last year and got into the playoff, where a lot of people, I think, thought they were out after the loss to Kansas State, I wouldn't put anything completely past them. But right now, it looks like they're really uh, back into a corner. Yeah, that's what I think, too. I mean, they're going to have to be Texas. And, hey, Texas had themselves quite the scare as well. Uh, they were down by 15 points with about six minutes left in the game. And I will say that, uh, you know, Hero put, put on his, uh, his cape, and uh, their quarterback did a really great job. And got him back in. They ended up winning in, in overtime. That was a great effort by Ellinger there to, to get him back in it. Uh, wasn't a great look to have to do that against a subpar Texas Tech team. But hey, I guess you get the W and it's better than Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, get the wins early in the season. You know, we've seen teams that made it to the playoff or even won national championships that had close calls early on. So just survive in advance. Yeah. And I think, you know, they got Texas can say that maybe that's a game they can grow on, but sadly it looks like right now them and Oklahoma State are the only hopes that the Big 12 really has for the college football playoffs and they need to keep winning. Yeah, definitely. Oklahoma State's offense doesn't look really good. I know they're undefeated, but their offense is, is kind of pedestrian. Yeah, but one thing I will say about Oklahoma State is their defense has actually been winning games for them, which is a weird thing for a Big 12 team, but – you look at Tulsa, they only gave up nine points, and they only gave up 14 against West Virginia. So I guess for some reason, while their offense, who stacked with playmakers like Chuba Hubbard and Tyler Wallace, are taking a while to, to adjust, at least their defense is playing well, but they're eventually going to meet the Oklahomas and the Texases that have the kind of offenses where you have to put up some numbers. And 
they're gonna have to they're gonna have to get it off if they're gonna be able to beat those teams. What's a shame? Last thing I'll say, it's a shame for the Big Twelve conference that Chuba Hubbard does not pay and play for Oklahoma because that would be a perfect compliment to their missing uh, running back depth chart. Uh, Oklahoma wouldn't have lost that game if they had Chuba on it. Um, switching to the 11 a.m. game, yeah. Joe. Let's stick in the Magnolia State. Uh, Ole Miss had a very good offensive showing against a solid defense in Florida, but then a very pathetic defensive showing. So probably kind of more or less what we were expecting out of Kiffin, not necessarily to that level. I mean, to having uh, you know Corral throw for over 400 yards and then put up you know, 30 points against uh, Florida. But man, uh, that defense doesn't like to improve at all. That. You know, in many ways, it looks worse. And my dad and I were talking about that Mike McIntyre probably would have coached a much better game on defense. You know, uh, maybe over time they'll improve on that side of the ball. But week one, I mean, it was a tough transition. And the thing about it is that Florida's defense really didn't look that good either. Uh, both defensive coordinators are going to be scratching their heads, you know, the rest of this week, preparing for next week, especially Florida, you know, thinking they're a national championship contender this year. But as far as the offensive performances by both teams, I mean, just fantastic. And really what it boiled down to for me, Dan, was the turnovers for Ole Miss on offense. If they don't have their turn- those turnovers in key situations, the red zone, they're right in this game. Yeah, they could potentially be the one to shoot out. If you look at the first drive of the game, offensively for Ole Miss, they turned it over on downs and did not kick the field goal when they were like at the 20-yard line which kind of surprised me, albeit we don't have the best field goal kicker. And then uh, later in the first half, you had a situation where they had the trick play passed by a wide receiver, Ontario uh, Drummond. They get down into the red zone, and I believe that was when Corral threw the interception with the ball was tipped at the line of scrimmage. So that's two possible touchdown drives that were denied because of turnovers. And then you factor in on the last play of the game, Ole Miss had a chance to punch it in from the goal line. So that's three potential touchdowns right there left on the board. So you give that to Ole Miss, they're right in the game. So for me, they just got to clean things up a little bit offensively. I saw a lot of encouraging things. I saw Matt Corral play his best game, but still too far erratic. He needs to settle down a little bit. But as far as Florida then, for me, Kyle Trask seemed like Prohibited favorite for the Heisman Trophy, and he was that good this this week. Well, Joe, I mean, who who would believe that I can tell you that Kyle Trask throws for six touchdowns, four hundred and fifty yards, and that he's one hundred and eighty yards behind the leader in the SEC for passing? I mean, Trask had an amazing game. If you look at it from a stats perspective, he might have actually had a better game than Costello because he didn't have any picks. Um, but the fact that he threw for one hundred eighty yeah. yards less. And Trask, I never would have thought looking at him last year, he was a guy who could throw for 450 yards. I thought he was a good quarterback, but I wasn't quite buying into as much hype as people were saying. I thought that he was a good college quarterback, but not really a guy that you could look to look at as a pro candidate. After all, Joe, he didn't even start for his own high school. So really kind of a, an everyday man uh, story here of someone that had to build up from the very bottom to be able to be a starter at Florida. It shows what can happen if you wait and if you put in a lot of effort. Oh, definitely. 
and he was fantastic. And I think he had a more efficient game than Costello. When you talk about the, the interceptions, and he was, I think, 19 for um, 30 in Costello. Well, I think he had 24 or eight completions, so a more efficient game. And then Kyle Pitts, the tight end for Florida, my goodness, I think he had the greatest uh, performance I've ever seen from a college tight end. I mean, just outstanding. Oh, yeah, 180 yards and four touchdowns. I've never heard of a tight end doing that before. I mean, not even like, you know, you think of the great SEC uh, tight ends we've had. I mean, I don't even know if Jason Wynn never did anything like that at Tennessee. O.J. Howard never did anything like that at Alabama. I mean, that was just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he had five touchdowns in his career heading into Oxford on Saturday. He almost eclipsed that in one game. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you got to think that his draft stock went sky high on that because nowadays in the NFL, that's a more valuable resource almost than a receiver. You look at the way Gronkowski's used, how Waller is used with the Raiders right now, uh, Jimmy Graham early in his career, of course, Travis Kelsey being number one out of all of those. And Kyle Pitts got himself a very solid future if he can keep this up. And he might be a top 10 draft pick. Oh, I think so, Dan. And I really came away from that game feeling like Florida, you know, has, like I'm kind of, you know, almost wanting to change my pick in the East now. Like I kind of feel like Florida's going to win the East based on what I saw in week one. Yeah, I feel very good about my pick of Florida winning the East after I saw their very efficient offense versus Georgia's anemic, I'd rather watch paint-drying offense against Arkansas. And on that subject, Joe, could you well, did you get to watch any of that Georgia Arkansas game? Did you see how truly awful Georgia looked in that game? I did, did because I was watching mostly the first half. I want to say it was like seven to five at halftime, mm-hmm. and I turned it off at that point. I was like, my goodness, this is ugly. And then in the second half, I turned it back on, and Georgia was coasting at that point. And so I guess my takeaway there is that Georgia's going to figure out what they're going to do at the quarterback position. It looks like JT Daniels might be able to play on Saturday against Auburn. Hopefully that will help them from their standpoint. But their rugby game was uh, vastly disappointing for me. They really couldn't get going early on. So I know uh, their defense, you know, is pretty good, but they've got to pick it up offensively if they're going to have a chance on Saturday. Yeah, but that's going to be the biggest thing is they're going to have to have – they don't necessarily have to have, you know, a Kyle Trask-like game against Auburn to beat them by their quarterback, they can't have their quarterback do what Dewan Mathis did and be like 5 of 15 for 30 yards and a turnover. I mean, you can't have that. And talking about the rushing standpoint, against Arkansas, Georgia only had 78 yards rushing. That's terrible. And not something I would ever thought I would hear in a Georgia versus Arkansas game with all the, the athletes that Georgia has, especially traditionally the running back position. Zamira White was supposed to be a guy who could compete for an all-SEC position, he looked like a subpar running back on Saturday. Do you think that Sam Pittman's knowledge of Georgia played a role in that in the first half and how Georgia was able to make adjustments at halftime? Maybe so. And, you know, you, you got to think too with uh, DeJuan Mathis being a first time starter in the SEC. If Sam Pittman had pretty intimate knowledge about the way he played, he probably knew some good ways to disrupt them. It was already going to be kind of a stressful experience for a guy taking his first real SEC snaps. 
Well, yeah, when you talk about Seth Williams, I mean, he had six six catches for 112 yards and two touchdowns. And that's in an Auburn offense that doesn't throw it 40 times. Uh, you have him in an Alabama offense, he's probably getting 180 yards receiving the game. I mean, he's a – I'm not saying that he's as good, but he's a similar kind of receiver to a Michael Thomas tight to where it's you put it in his radius, he gets it. He's not always going to be the dude that, you know, busts off an 80-yard catch and sprints past people. But he can be guarded by three guys, and if you put it anywhere near him, he's going to be the one that comes down with it. He is a really, really solid possession receiver who I think is looking like probably a first-round draft pick right now. Is he a junior this year? He's a junior, yeah. And he's been starting. Yeah, he'll be set up well. He'll be set up well for, for next uh, April or May. Yeah. So I thought that was a good win, and um, – you know, we come back in the next segment, we'll preview a little bit of Auburn, Georgia. But I wanted to say, too, uh, I thought Bo Nix played a good game. Uh, you know, three touchdowns, no interceptions. And I thought, like I said, I thought the first pass of Seth Williams showed a good judgment call, uh, put it in a place there's no way there could be any danger. And the last touchdown he threw to Eli Stove was actually a perfect deep ball and one where he actually threw him open. That was the, the pass that made me more excited than even the two to Seth Williams because, let's be honest, Seth Williams is a guy who can make an okay quarterback look good. That last throw showed a little bit of progression, I think, from Bo Nix to a good quarterback to a possibly very good or great quarterback. Yeah, we were able to work with guys you know, that are, that are less heralded. That, that's impressive. And I think that's one reason people were talking a lot about Costello's performance because uh, Mississippi State, you know, does not have household names and receiver, and yet, you know, he throws for 600-plus. That's right. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the first part of tonight's show. Uh, we have all of our episodes uploaded on Spotify. We're just searched the Dana and Joe Sports Show, and all of those come up, including last week's with Jim Dunaway. And follow us on Facebook. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.